So we sprang a fast one on you. Did you guys catch it, or did you just think that was the original, it, was, it is well? Okay, it was a little bit different. But before I get into the message, I want you to, to hear those words. I want you to hear the song in a, a little bit of a different light. He, um, Todd Fields, a worship leader, added some things. And it says in the chorus, it is well, it is well. Through the storm, I am held. It is well, it is well with my soul. Realizing that it's, it's okay in our soul. We have a peace in our soul because we are being held by God. That it's not just a coincidence that why do I feel happy in the time of sadness? It's because we're being held in God's hands. The second chorus is what we begin to celebrate today. It says, it is well. God has won. Christ prevailed. It is well with my soul. The reason it's well with your soul, the reason that we can proclaim a song like that is because God has won. Christ prevailed over the one thing that we cannot do ourselves. We cannot get to God by ourselves. But because of Christ dying on a cross for our sins, we have the chance to sing a song and say, it is well with our soul. Well, we continue in this series, Who is This Man? Jennifer asked me, how much longer are we going to be in this series? Three more weeks. We're going to begin looking at the last three days of Jesus' life. This week, we're going to look at Friday. Next week, Saturday. And then Easter, Sunday. You see, it's a lot of times during this time of the year, you get the whole story like lumped into one, and it's impossible to get all of the details, all of the facts into the passion or the last three days of Jesus' life. So I want us to, to break down each day and look at specifically why did things happen the way they did? Why did Jesus get crucified? If you look at any biography, if you look at a famous person's biography, like Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, or Martin Luther King Jr., when you read their biography, you'll see a little bit in there about their death and, and how it was significant to the world around them. But usually it's just a little snippet of their life. But when we look at the Gospels, we see something totally different happening. We see about a third of the Gospels are influenced solely on the death of Jesus. A third of each gospel is dedicated toward Jesus' death. We celebrate the last three days of Jesus' life. And it's known as the Trejuum, tre which is Latin for three days. 
When we celebrate these last three days because of the impact that they've had on all of us. We've talked the last six weeks about Jesus' influence on our lives and how he influences so many things that we don't even realize we're influenced by him. But it all comes down to this. It all comes down to these things being influenced by him because of his purpose, because of why he came. So we look at the end and go backwards. We're going to start late Friday. And then we're going to work our way to the beginning of the day. It turns out Friday is a day of mixed motives. Odd alliances and secret meetings, cynical PR ploys and political intrigue, along with very explosive emotions. It was late Friday afternoon. If you looked out from Jerusalem and you looked up to this hillside, which this is a picture of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And up on the top of this hill, you would see three crosses. On the outside, two crosses are two thieves who still remain on the cross. But the middle one is empty. The victim of this cross has been taken down. And he's been laid in a tomb. The middle cross... There remains above this cross a sign that reads, Jesus, the son of Nazareth, king of the Jews. On this sign, it is written in Hebrew or Aramaic, Latin and Greek. There's something about this sign that is really at the center. It's at the crux of everything that has taken place. Jesus. Of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Friday was a day where everyone seemed to have an agenda. Everyone seemed to have something going on with why Jesus was being crucified. Rome would have been one of the most obvious. Rome would say that Jesus has to die because Jesus is a threat to Rome. Any threat to Rome has to die. Well, why is Jesus a threat? Simply for one reason. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of people mistakenly think that Christ in Jesus' name was his last name. But it wasn't. You see, Christ in Greek comes from the word "creo," which means to anoint. So it means the anointed one or the Messiah. You see, they were looking for a Messiah. There were a lot of wannabe messiahs in that time. Uh, one of them we read about in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, um, Thudisius who claimed, to be part, who claimed that he could part the Jordan River and make the walls of Jerusalem fall down. Something Jesus talks about himself. 
Theodosius was eventually captured by the Romans and decapitated in Jerusalem in front of the crowds to be an example of what happens to any Messiah that should rise up against Roman powers. The book of Acts also also tells us about a man named Judas the Galilean. Judas actually was the founder of the Zealots um, who chose to revolt against the Roman authority. Judas led a revolt against Romans by refusing to pay taxes to Caesar. And so eventually Judas and 2,000 of his followers were crucified along the roads leading into Jerusalem as an example. What would happen to any Messiah who would rise up against Roman authority? You see, the people thought that Messiah was a man who was going to beat Rome. That he was going to take over the rule and that he was going to take over their, their country. And they would finally have peace. There would be no more fighting. There would be no worrying about what was going to happen to the Israelites. But the penalty for failure was crucifixion. If you got crucified... You are not the Messiah. Did you hear that? To the Romans, if you got crucified, you were not the Messiah because they showed that they had authority, that they had dominance over you. There were at least 18 Messiah candidates that tried to rise up in Jesus' day. So anyone who had the name Christ was automatically an enemy to the Romans. Jesus was crucified, if you haven't guessed yet. But yet, he did not lead with a military mindset. He did not rule as one wanting to be king over the land. He did things they expected a Messiah to do. He announced a new kingdom. He displayed great power. He claimed great authority over the people. But he deliberately rejected any indication that he was the Messiah. And he refused to lift a finger against Rome. He refused to fight. Backing up to Friday morning. We find a scene of Jesus and the chief priests before Pontius Pilate. It's important to understand Pilate's role. You see, Pilate's job was pretty much a headache for him. Nobody wanted Pilate's job because what Pilate had to do was he had to handle such a delicate challenge He had to keep the chief priests cooperative, but allow them enough distance that the anti-Roman crowds will still accept the authority of the Romans. He had to keep the zealot freedom fighters and the nationalist Pharisees and the, the isolation of the Essenes under control. He had to balance the authorities of the time so that Rome would still have control, that Caesar would be the ultimate authority. Eventually, sometime after Jesus' death, Pilate had so many people executed 
and the unrest grew unmanageable, that Caesar fired him. One historian says that Pilate's rule was marked by bribery, insults, robberies, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and he had a furious, vindictive temper. So the chief priests bring Jesus before Pilate. They have carefully thought through their plan because they want Pilate to do their dirty work. You see the Pharisees, the chief priests, it was against their code, their rules to condemn someone to death. They needed someone else to do their job for them. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate with these charges. We have found this man Jesus to be subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. See, he plays, they play right into what Pilate knows is wrong. The one thing that Pilate would condemn Jesus for is what they give the charges against Jesus. Now the chief priests are very careful or they care very little about Caesar. They're, they're not worried about offending him because they too didn't want to pay the taxes. They too, in their own mind, thought each one of themselves were kind of the authority in the day. When, P when Pilate finds out Jesus is from Galilee, he, he sends P Jesus to Herod. Because Herod had jurisdiction over the Galileans. But Herod didn't want anything to do with Jesus' sentence. So Jesus finds himself back before Pilate. And Pilate announces to the crowd and he reminds the crowd of the custom of that time. That he would release one prisoner back to the people. And so he offers the people Barabbas. And you see what doesn't specifically tell us in the scriptures is that Barabbas' last name, not last name, but title, would have been Barabbas Christ. Mark tells us, Mark and Luke in their gospels tell us that Barabbas was in prison for leading movements against Rome. Barabbas is guilty of the very charges for which Jesus is also being charged. But Pilate offers to free Barabbas. In one of the most famous scenes of Pilate and Jesus, Pilate washes his hands of Jesus' sentence. It's not that Pilate has a sensitive conscience or he's, he's worried about Jesus. He knows, he knows that the charges against Jesus are trumped up, that they're, they're false charges. But Pilate has to be in control. Pilate has to come across to his boss, Caesar, that he's the one in control. But the chief priests, they, they play a trump card. They, they finally say to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king, that is Jesus, 
opposes Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. You see, Pilate is in a situation that's very delicate for him. Because right in the back of his mind, he's remembering a recent event that took place. You see, one of Pilate's patrons in Rome is Caesar's chief lieutenant. Caesar had recently arrested his lieutenant and executed him on suspicions, suspicions of treason. This was Caesar's right-hand man that he had executed. He also executed several of his lieutenant's associates. There can be nothing more dangerous to Pilate than to not be a friend of Caesar. And so the chief priests are egging him on, if you will. If you let Jesus go, you're no friend of Caesar because he's trying to to raise up an army against the Roman people. The very thing Barabbas had already done. Pilate can't risk having Caesar think that he was soft on anti-Roman terrorists. And he asks Jesus the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the person they say you are? See, Jesus, this was the question that had kind of plagued his ministry. Wherever he went, the question was, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah, the one that we're waiting for? All he had to do at any point in his ministry was say, yes, I am the Messiah. And the Israelites would follow him. The Hebrew people would unite with Jesus and they would take a revolt and they would conquer the Roman people. All Jesus had to do was say yes. But he never said yes. He denied it at times when he was asked. But now he stands before a judge. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, yes. It is as you say. Now why? Why would Jesus at this point, when there's no army to back him up, all of his disciples have ran and deserted him. Now at this point he says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am king of the Jews. Pilate pronounces Jesus' death sentence. That he would be crucified. But he also doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He also, there's something about this man that he he can't get around. He doesn't want to crucify him. So who's really behind what's happening? We back up a little further to Friday just before sunrise. Jesus had developed a a rather large following of people. The crowds were behind Jesus. The crowds loved Jesus. 
The Gospels say that one of the Pharisees said in a meeting among the Pharisees, Here is this man, Jesus, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. But herein lies the main concern. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. If Jesus has a crowd of people around him and is supporting him, the Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy the nation of Israel. Because remember, Rome has to be the power of the time. But this wasn't an idle fear. This wasn't something to not be feared. Because in, for the Pharisees, it was something that had merit. In fact, this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. There was a revolt by one too many messiahs. And the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. And they destroyed the temple. And killed many of the Hebrew people. They knew it was going to happen. And so they feared that this would be the person that would lead them. The quickest way to get Pilate to crucify Jesus was to tell Pilate that Jesus was a threat to Rome. They actually had a hard time getting this done. Mark tells us about this. It says the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. They couldn't find two people to agree to say that these were the false accusations against Jesus so that they could crucify him. And so the chief priests just make up some things. Once again, Jesus finds himself in front of the chief priests. And they ask him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are, are you the one that we're waiting for? All Jesus had to do was keep quiet. If he would have not just said nothing. But he says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one you're waiting for. See, Jesus had done all their work for him. That's all the evidence they needed. Now he was guilty of blasphemy, of calling himself the king of the Jews, that he was the Messiah. Sometime after midnight, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The story of the human race, if you recall Genesis chapter 1, begins in a garden with a man named Adam. The story of the one who would be called the second Adam would end in a garden. When Jesus was in the garden, he still had a lot of options. You see, Jesus could fight like the zealots. He could lead a revolt. He could just run away. He could withdraw like the Essenes. He could work with the chief priests. He could give in to what they wanted him to do. He could cut a deal with Pilate. He could offer a bribe. 
He could call on his father. He could call on God to send angels and destroy everyone. But he didn't do any of those things. The most powerful man in the world chose to do nothing. Putting aside all the theories and theologies, it's important to hear these things. You see, Jesus knew that rebels were killed by Rome. If he did not die, a rebel named Barabbas would. You see, Jesus died on the cross in the place of Barabbas. Jesus knew the crowds were even now at that moment behind him. He knew that any moment, if, if he would turn to the crowd and address them, that he could lead a revolt against the Roman people. But he also knew that many of the soldiers were just boys from a nearby country called Syria who are working for the Roman government. Jesus didn't say the word to start the revolt. Instead, he went to the cross and died. A whole legion of Roman soldiers could live because Jesus would die on the cross and save them. Jesus knew that his, if he fled, that if he left the area and withdrew like the Essenes, that his disciples would be hunted down and that they would be caught and that they would be killed for being a disciple of Jesus. He knew that there was no hope for the future of the church. He knew that his legacy would not be what God had sent him to do if he didn't step into the place of the disciples and die on the cross for them. Jesus knew that if he would say the words, that if he would just simply lead a revolt, the crowds would follow him. Rome would come down and they would destroy Jerusalem. So he died to save Jerusalem. Jesus died for the very people who were insulting him, who were charging him with false accusations. The very people who wanted him dead, Jesus said, I will die for you. 2,000 years later, Jesus' death is the most important and most influential and most remembered death in the history of the world. And that sign that was above Jesus on the cross. You see, Pilate, more than anything, wanted to be remembered as, the son, as a friend of Caesar. But we can't help but think there was something in, in Pilate's heart that was drawn to Jesus. 
Because you see on that sign, he ended up writing in Hebrew or Aramaic the language of the people of God, the Hebrew people. In Greek, the language of the cultured world. And in Latin, the language of the Roman Empire. So that everyone who came, everyone who saw Jesus crucified, would not only see his charge, but they would know who he was. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see, part of me, I think Pilate, part of him knew. You don't just rule an empire and not know who the people are that are your enemies. Pilate knew who Jesus was. And I think Pilate, in some way, knew that Jesus was going to die for us. You see, in a couple weeks, we celebrate Easter. And we think to ourselves, great, you know, Jesus died on a cross and he died for our sins. But when you think about it, he, he was a human, just like you and I. He was an everyday, ordinary person. He had a chance to run. He had a chance to, to get away with things. He didn't have to be crucified. He didn't have to die on the cross. But everywhere we see in Scripture and in proven history, by even historians that did not even follow Christ, pagan historians even conclude the same things that the Bible tells us. That Jesus was who he says he was. And he chose to still die on a cross for us. You see, the chief priests did not sentence Jesus to death. The false testimonies did not sentence Jesus to death. Pilate did not sentence Jesus to death. Jesus sentenced himself to death for us. Think about that. He could have gotten away with it. But he chose. You see, the cross was a choice that no one else could make except for Jesus. He wasn't forced into it. But he came with a purpose, and that was his purpose, to die on a cross for us. My prayer for you and for all of us is that we remember 
that Jesus chose to die for us. That when we struggle in life, when we have things that are, that are holding us down, there is hope. There is hope in the midst of confusion. There's hope in the midst of depression. I know. I've been there. I've had moments of feeling like all is lost. I've had moments of pain. I've had moments of suffering in family life. I've watched people suffer. But I still understand that there's a hope beyond my understanding. And if you and I sit down and we whip out a book and we try to write down and try to understand how we can have hope in the midst of all the things going on in our lives, you won't understand it. You see, because there's an element to Christ dying on the cross that is a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing that Jesus is who he says he was, that he died to do the things that he said he would do. And allowing him to prove himself to you. I don't know about you. When I realized that a man willingly chose and had every opportunity to get out of it, chose to give his life for me. That changes my perspective. You see, Friday wasn't the end. But it was really just the beginning. What was that Friday for you? As Jeff comes... You guys have sang this song once today. You know it now. And as you hear these words, it is well. Through the storm, I am held. Through every circumstance that comes against your life, you can know that Jesus Christ is holding you. That he's there wanting and willing to help. And when you know that you're held by Christ, you can boldly proclaim that God has won. Christ prevailed. This wasn't the end of Jesus' life. It was the beginning of life for everyone. Because God has won. And I pray that it will be well with your soul.